Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Skylark 3 by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 11, Chapter 13, The Declaration of War. The capital city of the Fenachrone lay in a jungle plain surrounded by towering hills, a perfect circle of immense diameter, its buildings of uniform height, of identical design, and constructed of the same dull gray translucent metal. It was arranged in concentric circles, like the angular rings seen upon the stump of a tree. Between each ring of the buildings and the one next inside it, there were lagoons, lawns, and groves. Lagoons of tepid, sullenly steaming water. Lawns which were veritable carpets of lush, rank rushes and of dank mosses. Groves of palms, gigantic ferns, bamboos, and numerous tropical growths unknown to earthly botany. At the very edge of the city began jungle, unrelieved and primal, impenetrable, unconquerable jungle, possible only to such meteorological conditions as obtained there. Wind there was none, nor sunshine. Only occasionally was the sun of that reeking world visible through the omnipresent fog, a pale, wan disk. Always the atmosphere was one of oppressive, hot, humid vapor. In the exact center of the city rose an immense structure, a terraced cone of buildings, as though immense disks of smaller and smaller diameter had been piled upon one another. In these apartments dwelt the nobility and the high officials of the Fenachrone. In the highest disk of all, invisible always from the surface of the planet because of the all-enshrouding mist, were the apartments of the emperor of that monstrous race. Seated upon the low, heavily built metal stools about the great table in the council room were Fenor, emperor of Fenachrone, Fenimol, his general in command, and the full council of eleven of the planet. Being projected in the air before them was a three-dimensional, moving, talking picture, the report of the sole survivor of the warship that had attacked Skylark II. In exact accordance with the facts, as the engineer knew them, the details of the battle and complete information concerning the conquerors were shown. As vividly as though the scene were being reenacted before their eyes, they saw the captain revive in the violet, and heard the conversation between the engineer, Duquesne, and Loring. In the violet they sped for days and weeks, with ever-mounting velocity toward the system of the Fenachrone. Finally, power reversed. They approached it, saw the planet looming large, and passed within the detector screen. Duquesne tightened the controls of the attractors, which had never been entirely released from their prisoner, thus again pinning the Fenachrone completely against the wall. Just to be sure you don't try starting something he explained coldly. You have done well so far, but I'll run things myself from now on, so that you can't steer us into a trap. Now tell me exactly how to go about getting one of your vessels. After we get it, I'll see about letting you go. You fools! You are too late! You would have been too late even had you killed me out there in space and had fled at your utmost acceleration. Did you but know it, you are as dead even now. Our patrol is upon you. Duquesne whirled, snarling, and his automatic and that of Loring were leaping out, 
when an awful acceleration threw them flat upon the floor. A magnetic force snatched away their weapons, and a heat ray reduced them to two small piles of gray ash. Immediately thereafter, a beam of force from the patrolling cruiser neutralized the retractors bearing upon the captive, and he was transferred to the rescuing vessel. The emergency report ended, and with a brief torpedo message from flagship Y-427W resumed at the point of interruption. The report from the ill-fated vessel continued the story of its own destruction, but added little in the already complete knowledge of the disaster. Fenor the Fenachrone leaped up from the table, his terrible flame-shot eyes glaring venomously, teetering in berserk rage upon his block-like legs. But he did not for one second take his full attention from the report until it was completed. Then he seized the nearest object, which happened to be his chair, and with all his enormous strength hurled it across the floor, where it lay a tattered, twisted, shapeless mass of metal. Thus shall we treat the entire race of the accursed beings who have done this. He stormed, his heavy voice reverberating throughout the room. Torture, dismemberment, and annihilation to every... Fedor of Fenacrone. A tremendous voice, a full octave lower than Fenor's own terrific bass, and of ear-shattering volume and timber in that dense atmosphere, boomed from the general wave speaker, its deafening roar drowning out Fenor's raging voice and every other lesser sound. Fenor of the Fenacrone, I know you hear, for every general wave speaker upon your reeking planet is voicing my words. Listen well, for this warning shall not be repeated. I am speaking by and with the authority of the overlord of the green system, which you know as the central system of this, our galaxy. Upon some of our many planets, there are those who wish to destroy you without warning and out of hand. But the overlord has ruled that you may continue to live, provided you heed these his commands which he has instructed me to lay upon you. You must forthwith abandon forever your vainglorious and senseless scheme of universal conquest. You must immediately withdraw your every vessel to within the boundaries of your solar system, and you must keep them there thenceforth. You are allowed five minutes to decide whether or not you will obey these commands. If no answer has been received at the end of the calculated time, the Overlord will know that you have defied him, and your entire race shall perish utterly. Well, he knows that your very existence is an affront to all real civilization. But he holds that even such vileness incarnate as the Fenachrone may perchance have some obscure place in the great scheme of things, and he will not destroy you if you are content to remain in your proper place upon your own dank and steaming world. Through me, the 2,364th Sackner Carfana de Sur, the Overlord has given you your first, last, and only warning. Heed its every word, or consider it the former declaration of a war that will lead to your utter and complete extinction. The awful voice ceased, 
and pandemonium reigned in the council hall. Obeying a common impulse, each Fenachrone leapt to his feet, raised his huge arms aloft, and roared out rage and defiance. Fenor snapped a command, and the others fell silent as he began howling out orders. Operator! Send recall torpedoes instantly to every outlying vessel. He scuttled over to one of the private band speakers. X-794PW, radio general call for all vessels above E-blank-E to concentrate on battle stations. Throw out full-power defensive screens and send the full series of detector screens out to the limit. Guards and patrols on invasion plan XB-218. The immediate steps are taken, gentlemen. He turned to the council, his rage unabated. Never before have we supermen of the Fenachrone been so insulted and belittled. That upstart overlord will regret that warning to the instant of his death, which shall be exquisitely postponed. All of you of the council know your duties in such a time as this. You are excused to perform them. General Fenimol, you will stay with me. We shall consider together such other details as require attention. After the others had left the room, Fenor turned to the general. Have you any immediate suggestions? I would suggest sending at once for Ravendal, the chief of laboratories of science. He certainly heard the warning and may be able to cast some light upon it and how it could have been sent and from what point it came. The emperor spoke into another sender, and soon the scientist entered, carrying in his hand a small instrument upon which a blue light blazed. Do not talk here. There is grave danger of being overheard by that self-styled overlord. He directed tersely, and led the way into a ray-proof compartment of his private laboratory, several floors below. It may interest you to know that you have sealed the doom of our planet and all of Fenachrone. Dare you speak thus to me, your sovereign? roared Fenor. I dare so, replied the other coldly. When all the civilization of a planet has been given to destruction by the unreasoning stupidity and insatiable rapacity of its royalty, allegiance to such royalty is at an end. Sit down! He thundered this as Fenor sprang to his feet. You are no longer in your throne room, surrounded by servile guards and by automatic rays. You are in my laboratory, and by a movement of my finger I can hurl you into eternity. The general, aware now that the warning was of much more serious import than he had suspected, broke into the acrimonious debate. Never mind questions of royalty. The safety of the race is paramount. Am I to understand that the situation is really grave? It is worse than grave. It is desperate. The only hope for even ultimate triumph is for as many of us as possible to flee instantly clear of this galaxy in the hope that we may escape the certain destruction that will be dealt out to us by the overlord of the green system. You speak folly, surely, returned Fenimal. Our sciences must be superior to any other in the universe. So I thought until this warning came in, and I had an opportunity to study it, 
Then I knew that we were opposed by a science immeasurably higher than our own. Such vermin as those two whom one of our smallest scouts captured without a battle, vessel at all? In what respects is their science even comparable to ours? Not those vermin, no! The one who calls himself Overlord, that one is our master. He can penetrate the impenetrable shield of force and cooperate mechanisms of pure force behind it. He can heterodyne, transmit, and use infrarays, of whose very existence we were in doubt until recently. While that warning was being delivered, he was in all probability watching you, listening to you face to face. You and your ignorance supposed his warning borne by the ether, and thought therefore he must be close. He is probably at home in the central system, and is at this moment preparing the forces he intends to hurl against us. The emperor fell back into his seat, all his pomposity gone, but the general stiffened eagerly and went straight to the point. How do you know these things? Largely by deduction, we of the School of Science have cautioned you repeatedly to postpone the day of conquest until we should have mastered the secrets of sub-rays and infra-rays. Unheeding, you of war have gone ahead with your plans, while we of science have continued to study. We know little of the sub-rays, which we use every day, and practically nothing of infra-rays. Some time ago I developed a detector for infrarays, which come to us from outer space in small quantities, and which are liberated by our power plants. It has been regarded as a scientific curiosity only, but this day it proved of real value. This instrument in my hand is such a detector. At normal impacts of infrarays it is light blue, as you see it now. Sometime before the warning sounded, it turned a brilliant red, indicating an intense source of infrarays was operating in the neighborhood. By plotting lines of force, I located the source as being in the air of the council room, almost directly above the table of state. Therefore, the carrier wave must have come through our whole system of screens without so much as an alarm. As soon as I perceived these facts, I threw about the council room a scream of force entirely impervious to anything longer than ultra-rays. The warning continued, and then I knew that our fears were only too well grounded, that there is in this galaxy somewhere a race vastly superior to ours in science, and that our destruction is a matter of hours, perhaps minutes. Are these ultra-rays, then, of such a dangerous character? asked the general. I had supposed them to be of such infinitely high frequency that they could be of no practical use whatsoever. I have been trying for years to learn something of their nature, but beyond working out a method for their detection and a method of possible analysis that may or may not succeed, I can do nothing with them. You may see for yourself that to a science able to guide and control them, to make them act as carrier waves for any desired frequency, to do all of which the Overlord has done this day, 
They should theoretically afford weapons before which our every defense would be precisely as efficacious as so much vacuum. Think a moment. You know that we know nothing fundamental concerning even our servants, the subrays. If we really knew them, we could utilize them in a thousand different ways. We work with the merest handful of forces, empirically, while it is practically certain that the enemy has at his command the entire spectrum, visible and invisible, embracing untold thousands of bands of unknown but terrific potential. But he spoke of a calculated time necessary before our answer could be received. They must then be using vibrations in the ether. Not necessarily, not even probably. Would we ourselves reveal unnecessarily to an enemy the possession of such rays? Do not be foolish. No, Fenimal, and you, Fenor of Fenacrone, instant and headlong flight is our only hope of present salvation and ultimate triumph. Flight to a far distant galaxy, since upon no point in this one shall we be safe from the infra-beams of that self-styled overlord. You sniveling coward! You pusillanimous bookworm! Fenimore had regained his customary spirit, as the scientist explained upon what grounds his fears were based. Upon such a tenuous fabric of evidence, would you have such a people as ours turn tail, like beaten hounds? Because forsooth you detect a peculiar vibration in the air. Will you have it that we are to be invaded and destroyed forthwith by a race of supernatural abilities? Bah! Your calamity howling clan has delayed the day of conquest for years. I more than half believe that you yourself or some other treacherous poltroon of your ignominious breed prepared and sent that warning. Weak, rat-brained. You try to frighten us into postponing the day of conquest. Know now, you spineless weakling, that the time is ripe, and that the Fenachrome and their might are about to strike. But you, foul traducer of your emperor, shall die the death of the cur you are. The hand within his tunic moved, and a vibrator burst into operation. Coward I may be, and pusillanimous, and other things as well, the scientist replied stonily. But unlike you, I am not a fool. These walls, this very atmosphere, are fields of force that will transmit no rays directed by you, you weak-minded scion of a depraved, obscene house. Arrogant, overbearing, rapacious, ignorant, your brain is too feeble to realize you are clutching at the universe hundreds of years before the time has come. You, by your overweening pride and folly, have doomed our beloved planet, the most perfect planet in the galaxy, in its grateful warmth and wonderful dampness and fogginess, and our entire race to certain destruction. Therefore, you fool and dolt, you shall die, for too long have you ruled already. He flicked a finger, and the body of the monarch shuddered as though an intolerable current of electricity had traversed it. He collapsed and lay still. It was necessary to destroy this that was our ruler, Ravendau explained to the general. 
I have long known that you are not in favor of such a precipitate action in the conquest. Hence, all this talking upon my part. You know that I hold the honor of Venacrone Deer, and that all my plans are for the ultimate triumph of our race. Yes, and I begin to suspect that those plans have not been made since the warning was received. My plans have been made for many years. Ever since an immediate conquest was decided upon, I have been assembling and organizing the means to put them into effect. I would have left this planet in any event shortly after the departure of the Grand Fleet upon its final expedition. Fienor's senseless defiance of the Overlord has only made it necessary for me to expedite my leave-taking. What do you intend to do? I have a vessel twice as large as the largest warship Fienor boasted of, completely provisioned, armed and powered for a cruise of one hundred years at high acceleration. It is hidden in a remote fastness of the jungle. I am placing in that vessel a group of the finest, brainiest, most highly advanced intelligence of our men and women with their children. We shall journey at our highest speed to a certain distant galaxy, where we shall seek out a planet similar in atmosphere, temperature, and mass to the one upon which we now dwell. There we shall multiply and continue our studies, and from that planet, in that day when we shall have attained sufficient knowledge, there shall descend upon the central system of this galaxy the vengeance of the Fenachrone. That vengeance will be all the sweeter for the fact that it shall have been delayed. But how about libraries, apparatus, and equipment? Suppose we do not live long enough to perfect that knowledge, and with only one vessel and a handful of men, we could not cope with that accursed overlord and his navies of the void. Libraries are aboard. So are much apparatus and equipment. What we cannot take with us, we will build. As for knowledge, I mentioned it may not be attained in your lifetime, nor in mine. But the racial memory of the Fenachrone is long, as you know. And even if the necessary problems are not solved until our descendants are sufficiently numerous to populate an entire planet, yet will those descendants wreak vengeance of the Fenachrone upon the races of that hated one, the Overlord, before they go on with the conquest of the universe. Many questions will arise, of course, but they will be solved. Time passes rapidly, enough of this. All too long we have talked. I am using this time upon you because in my organization there is no soldier, and the Fenachrone of the future will need your knowledge of warfare. Are you going with us? Yes. Very well, then. Ravendown led the general through a door and into an airboat, lying upon the terrace outside the laboratory. Drive us at speed to your home, where we shall pick up your family. Fenimal took the controls and laid a ray to his home, a ray serving a double purpose. It held the vessel upon its predetermined course through the thick and sticky fog, and also rendered collision impossible, since any two of these controller rays repelled each other. I understand you could not take any one of the military into your confidence until you were ready to put your plans into effect, the general conceded. How long will it take you to get ready to leave? You said that haste was imperative. 
and I therefore assume that you have already warned the other members of the expedition. I flashed the emergency signal before I joined you and Finor in the council room. Each man of the organization has received that signal, wherever he was, and by this time most of them and their families are on their way to the hidden cruiser. We shall leave this planet in fifteen minutes now at most. I dare not stay an instant longer than absolutely necessary. The members of the general's family were bundled, amazed, into the airboat, which immediately flew along a ray laid by Ravindau to the secret rendezvous. In a remote and desolate part of the planet, concealed in the depths of the towering jungle growth, a mammoth space cruiser was receiving her complement of passengers. Airboats, flying at their terrific velocity through the heavy steaming fog, as closely spaced as their controller rays would permit, flashed signals along their guiding beams and dove into the apparently impenetrable jungle, adding their passengers to the throng pouring into the great vessel. As the minute of departure drew near, the feeling of tension aboard the cruiser increased, and vigilance was raised to the maximum. None of the passengers had been allowed senders of any description, and now even the hairline beams guiding their airboats were cut off and received only when the proper code signal was heard. The doors were shut, no one was allowed outside, and everything was held in readiness for instant flight. Finally, a scientist and his family arrived from the opposite side of the planet, the last members of the organization. And twenty-seven minutes after Robindow had flashed his signal, the prow of that mighty spaceship reared toward the perpendicular, poised its massive length at a predetermined angle, halted momentarily, and then disappeared utterly, only in a vast column of tortured, shattered vegetation, torn from the ground and carried for miles up into the air. Hour after hour the Fetichrone vessel bored on, with its frightful and ever-increasing velocity, through the ever-thinning stars, but it was not until the last star had been passed, until everything before them was entirely devoid of light, until the galaxy behind them began to take on a well-defined lenticular aspect, that Ravendow would consent to leave the controls and to seek his hard-earned rest. Chapter 14 Interstellar Extermination I hate to leave this meeting. It's great stuff, remarked Seaton as he flashed down to the torpedo room at Fenor's command to send recall messages to all outlying vessels. But this machine isn't designed to let me be in more than two places at once. I wish it were. Maybe after this fracas is over, we'll be able to incorporate something like that into it. The chief operator touched a lever in the chair upon which he sat with all his control panels slid rapidly across the floor toward an apparently blank wall. As he reached it, a port opened, and a metal scroll appeared, containing the numbers and last reported positions of all fenachrone vessels outside the detector zone, and a vast magazine of torpedoes came up through the floor. With an automatic loader to place a torpedo under the operator's hand, the instant his predecessor had been launched. Get Peg here, quick, Mart. We need a stenographer. So she gets here, See what you can do in getting those first numbers before they roll off the end of the scroll. No, hold it. I've got controls enough to put the whole thing on a recorder. We can study it at our leisure. 
Haste was indeed necessary, for the operator worked with uncanny quickness of hand. One fleeting glance at the scroll, a lightning adjustment of dials in the torpedo, a touch upon a tiny button, and a messenger was sent on its way. But quick as he was, Seaton's flying fingers kept up with him, and before each torpedo disappeared through the ether gate, there was fastened upon it a fifth-order tracer ray that would never leave it until the force had been disconnected at the gigantic control board of the Norlaminian projector. One flying minute passed, during which seventy torpedoes had been launched before Seaton spoke. wonder how many ships they've got out there anyway. Didn't get any idea from the brain record. Anyway, Roval, it might be a sound idea for you to install me some more tracer rays on this board. I've only got a couple of hundred, and that may not be enough. And I've got both my hands full. Roval seated himself beside the younger man, like one organist joining another at the console of a tremendous organ. Seaton's nimble fingers would flash here and there, depressing keys and manipulating controls until he had exactly the required combination of forces centered upon the torpedo next to issue. He would then press a tiny switch, and upon a panel full of red-topped number plungers, the one next in the series would drive home, transferring to itself the assembled beam and releasing the keys for the assembly of other forces. Roval's fingers were also flying, but the forces he directed were seizing and shaping material, as well as other forces. Norlaminian physicists set up one integral, stepped upon a pedal, and a new red-topped stop precisely like the others and numbered in order, appeared as though by magic upon the panel of Seaton's left hand. Roval then leaned back at his seat, but the red-topped stops continued to appear at the rate of exactly 70 per minute, upon the panel which increased in width sufficiently to accommodate another row as soon as a row was completed. Roval bent a quizzical glance upon the younger scientist, who blushed a fiery red, rapidly set up another integral, and then also leaned back in his place, while his face burned deeper than before. "'That is better, son. Never forget it is a waste of energy to do the same thing twice with your hands, and that if you know precisely what is to be done, you need not do it with your hands at all. Forces are tireless, and they neither slip nor make mistakes.' "'Thanks, Roval. I'll bet this lesson will make it stick in my mind, too.' You are not thoroughly accustomed to using all your knowledge as yet. That will come with practice, however, and in a few weeks you will be as thoroughly at home with forces as I am. I hope so, Chief, but it looks like a tall order to me. Finally the last torpedo was dispatched, the tube closed, and Seaton moved the projection back up into the council chamber, finding it empty. Oh, conference is over. Besides, we've got more important fish to fry. War has been declared on both sides. We've got to get busy. They've got 906 vessels out there, and every one of them has got to go to Davy Jones's locker before we can sleep sound. My first job will have to be untangling those 906 forces, getting lines on each one of them, and seeing if I can project straight enough to find the ships before the torpedoes overtake them. Mart, you and Orlon had better dope out the last reported positions of each of those vessels, so we'll know about where to hunt for them. Roval, you might send out a detector screen a few light years in diameter to be sure none of them slips a fast one over on us. By starting it right here and expanding it gradually, you can be sure that no fenachrone is inside of it. Then we'll find a hunk of copper on that planet somewhere, 
played it with some of their own X-Metal and blow them to kingdom come. May I venture a suggestion? Asked Drosnik, the first of psychology. Absolutely. Nothing you've said so far has been idle chatter. You know, of course, that there are real scientists among the Fenachrone, and you yourself have suggested that while they cannot penetrate this order of force, nor use fifth-order rays, they might know about them in theory. They might even know when they were being used. Detect them, in other words. Let us assume that such a scientist did detect your rays while you were there a short time ago. What would he do? Search me. I bite. What would he do? He might do any one of several things. But if I read their nature right, such a one would be to gather up men and women, as many as he could, and migrate to another planet. For he would, of course, grasp instantly the fact that you used fifth-order rays as carrier waves, and would be able to deduce your ability to destroy them. He would also realize that in the brief time allowed, he could not hope to learn to control those unknown forces, and with his terribly savage and vengeful nature, and intense pride of race, he would take every possible step both to perpetuate his race and obtain his revenge. Am I right? Seaton swung to his control savagely and manipulated dials and keys. Right as rain, Drasnik. There, I've thrown around them a fifth-order detector screen that they can't possibly neutralize. Anything that goes out through it will have a tracer slapped onto it. But say, it's been a half an hour since the war was declared. Suppose we were too late. Maybe some of them got away already. If one couple of them has beat us, then we'll have the whole thing to do over again in a thousand years. You've got the massive intellect, Drosnik. What can we do about it? We can't throw a detector screen around the whole galaxy. I would suggest that since you have now guarded against further exodus, it is necessary to destroy the planet for a time. Roval and his co-workers have the other projector nearly done. Let them project me to the world of the Fenachrone, where I shall conduct a thorough mental investigation. By the time you have been able to take care of the raiding vessels, I believe I shall have been able to learn everything we need to know. Fine, hop to it. And may there be a lot of bubbles in your think tank. Anybody else know of any other loopholes I've left open? No other suggestions were made, and each man bent to his particular task. Crane at the star chart of the galaxy, and Orlon at the Fenachrone operator's dispatching scroll, rapidly working out the approximate positions of the Fenachrone vessels, and marked them with tiny green lights in a vast model of the galaxy, which they had already caused forces to erect in the air of the projector's base. It was soon learned that a few of the ships were exploring quite close to their home system, so close that the torpedoes with their unthinkable acceleration would reach within a few hours. Ascertaining the stop number of the tracer ray upon the torpedo, which would first reach its destination, Seaton followed it from the stop upon his panel out to the flying messenger. Now moving with a velocity many times that of light, it was, of course, invisible to direct vision but to the light waves heterodyned upon the fifth-order projector rays, it was as plainly visible as though it were stationary. Lining up the path of the projectile accurately, he then projected himself forward in that exact line, 
with a flat detector screen thrown out for half a light year upon each side of him. Setting the controls, he flashed ahead, the detector stopping him the instant that the invisible barrier encountered the power plant of the exploring raider. An oscillator sounded a shrill, rising note, and Seaton slowly shifted his controls until he stood in the control room of the enemy vessel. The Fenachrone ship, a thousand feet long and more than a hundred feet in diameter, was tearing through space toward a brilliant blue-white star. Her crew were at battle stations, her navigating officers peering intently into visiplates. Well, here's the first one, gang, said Seaton. I hate like sin to do this, but altogether it's too much like pushing baby chickens into a creek to suit me. But it's a dirty job that's got to be done. As one man, Orlan and the other remaining Norlaminians, leapt out of the projector and floated to the ground below. Well, I expected that, remarked Seaton. They can't even think of a thing like this without getting the blue willies. Really, I can't blame them. How about you, Carfon? You can be excused if you want. I want to watch these forces at work. I do not enjoy destruction. But like you, I can make myself endure it. Dunark, the fierce and bloodthirsty Osnomian prince, leapt to his feet, eyes flashing. That is one thing I could never get about you, Dick, exclaimed in English. How a man with your brains can be so soft, so sloppily sentimental gets past me. You remind me of a bowl of mush you wade around in slush clear to your ears. It's their lives or ours. Tell me what button to push. I will be only too glad to push it. I wanted to blow up a vineyard. You wouldn't let me. I have not killed an enemy for ages. That is my trade. Cut out this sobbing sister act, and for cut's sake, let's get busy. And a boy, Dunark. That's telling him. But it's all right with me. I'll be glad to let you do it. When I say shoot, throw in that plunger there, number 63. Seaton manipulated the controls until two electrodes of force were clamped into place, one at each end of the huge power bar of the enemy vessel. Adjusted rheostats and forces to send a disintegrating current through the massive copper cylinder, and he gave the word. Then Ark threw in the switch with a vicious thrust, as though it were an actual sword with which he was thrusting through the vitals of the crew, and the very universe exploded around them exploded into one mad, searing coruscation of blinding, dazzling light as the gigantic cylinder of copper resolved itself instantaneously into the pure energy from which its metal originally had come into being. Seaton and Dunark staggered back from the visiplates, blinded by the intolerable glare of light, and even Crane, working in his model of the galaxy, blinked at the intensity of the radiation. Many minutes passed before the two men could see through their tortured eyes. Zowie! That was fierce! exclaimed Seaton, when a slowly returning perception of things other than dizzy spirals and balls of flame assured him his eyesight was not gone. It's nothing but my own foolish carelessness. I should have known with all the light frequencies in heterodyne for visibility. Enough of that same stuff would leak through to make strong medicine on these visiplates. I knew that that bar weighed a hundred tons and would liberate energy enough to volatilize our Earth and blow the byproducts clear to Arcturus. 
How are you coming, Dunark? See anything yet? Coming along. Okay now, I guess. But I thought for a few minutes I would be blind forever. I'll do better next time. I'll cut out the visible spectrum before the flash and convert and reconvert the infrared. That'll let us see what happens without the direct effect of the glare. It won't burn our eyes out. What's my force number on the next one, Mart? 29. Seaton fastened a detector ray upon stop 29 of the tracer ray panel and followed its beam of force out to the torpedo, hastening upon its way toward the next doomed cruiser. Flashing ahead, as he had done before, he located the vessel and clamped the electrodes of force upon the prodigious driving bar. Again, as Dunark drove home the detonating switch, there was a frightful explosion and a wild glare of frenzied incandescence far out in that desolate region of interstellar space. But this time the eyes behind the visiplates were not torn by the high frequencies. Everything that happened was plainly visible. One instant there was an immense space cruiser boring on through the void with its horrid mission, with its full complement of hellish phenochrome performing the routine tasks, and the next there was a flash of light extending for thousands upon untold thousands of miles in every direction. Thus vessel after vessel was destroyed of that haughty fleet, which until now had never suffered a reverse, and a little green light in the galactic model winked out and flashed back in rosy pink as each menace was removed. In a few hours the space surrounding the system of the Fenachrone was clear. Their progress slackened as it became harder and harder to locate each vessel as the distance between it and its torpedo increased. Time after time, Seaton would stab forward with his detector screen, extended to its utmost possible spread, upon the most carefully plotted prolongation of the line of the torpedo's flight, only to have the projection flash far beyond the vessel's furthest possible position without a reaction from the far-flung screen. Then he'd go back to the torpedo, make a minute alteration in his line, and again flash forward, only to miss again. Finally, after 30 fruitless attempts to bring his detector screen into contact with the dearest Renachrone ship, he gave up the attempt, ran his battered, reeking briar full of the rank blend that was his favorite smoke, and strode up and down the floor of the projector base, his eyes unseeing, his hands jammed deep into his pockets, his jaw thrust forward, clamped onto the stem of his pipe, emitting dense blue clouds of strangling vapor. Oh, the maestro is thinking, I perceive, remarked Dorothy sweetly, entering the projector from an airboat. You must all be blind, I guess. Haven't any of you heard that bell go off, huh? I've decided to come after you. It's time to eat. a girl, Dot. Never miss the eats. Thanks. And Seaton put his problem away with perceptible effort. This is going to be a job, Mart. He went back to it as soon as they were seated in the airboat, flying toward home. I can nail them with an increasing shift in azimuth, up to about 30,000 light years. But after that, it gets awfully hard to get the right shift. And up around 100,000, it seems to be darn near impossible. It, it gets to be pure guesswork. It can't be the controls, because they can hold a point rigidly at 500,000. Of course, we've got a pretty short backline to sight on, but... The shift is more than a hundred times as great as the possible error and backsight could account for. 
There's apparently nothing either regular or systematic about it I can figure out, but I don't know. Space is curved in the fourth dimension, of course. I wonder if... Uh... He fell silent and Craig made a rapid signal to Dorothy, who was opening her mouth to say something. She shut it, feeling ridiculous, and nothing was said until they had disembarked at their destination. Did you solve the puzzle, Dickie? I don't think so. I got myself deeper than ever, I'm afraid, he answered. Then he went on, thinking aloud rather than addressing anyone in particular. So, space is curved in the fourth dimension, and fifth-order rays, with their velocity, may not follow the same path in that dimension that light does. In fact, they don't. If that path is to be plotted, it requires the solution of five simultaneous equations, each complete in general, and each of the fifth degree, and also an exponential series with the unknown and the final exponent, before the fourth dimension concept can be derived. Hmm. Oh, no use. We struck something that not even Norlaminian theory can handle. You surprise me, Crane said. I suppose they had everything worked out. Not on fifth-order stuff, they don't. It's new. It begins to look as though we'll have to stick around until every one of those torpedoes gets somewhere near its mothership. I hate to do that, but it'll take months, six months at least, to reach the vessels clear across the galaxy. I'll put it up to the gang at dinner. I guess they'll let me talk business a couple of minutes over time, especially after they find out what I've got to say. He explained the phenomenon to an interested group of white-bearded scientists as they ate. Roval, to Seaton's surprise, was elated and enthusiastic. Wonderful, my boy, he breathed. Marvelous! A perfect subject for years after a year of deepest study and the most profound thought. Perfect! Yeah, but what can we do about it? asked Seaton, exasperated. We don't want to hang around here twiddling our thumbs for a year waiting for those torpedoes to get where they're going. We can do nothing, nothing but wait and study. That problem is one of splendid difficulty, as you yourself realize. Its solution may well be a matter of lifetimes instead of years. You can destroy the Fenachrone eventually. Be content. But content is just exactly what I'm not. I want to do it now declared Seaton emphatically. Perhaps I might volunteer a suggestion, said Caslor diffidently. And as both Roval and Seaton looked at him in surprise, he went on, Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean concerning the mathematical problem in discussion, about which I am entirely ignorant. But it has occurred to you that those torpedoes are not intelligent entities acting upon their own volition and staring themselves as a result of their own ordered mental processes. No, they are mechanisms. In my own province, and I venture to say, with the utmost confidence, that they are guided to their destinations by streamers of force of some nature, emanating from the vessels about whose tracks they are. Nobody home is right, exclaimed Seaton, tapping his temple with an admonitory forefinger. You're absolutely right, Ace. I thought maybe I'd quit using my head for nothing but a hat rack, but I guess that's all it's good for now. Thanks for the idea. That gives me something I can get my teeth into. 
And now that Roval's got a problem to work on for the next century or so, everybody's happy. How does that help matters? asked Crane in wonder. Of course, it's not surprising that no lines of force were visible, but I thought that your detector screens would have found them if any such guiding beams had been present. Sure, ordinary bands, if of sufficient power, but there are many possible tracer rays not reactive to such a screen as I'm using. It was very light and weak, designed for terrific velocity and for instantaneous automatic arrest when in contact with the enormous forces of a power bar. It wouldn't react at all to the minute energy of the kind of beams they'd most likely use for that work. Kessler's right. They're steering their torpedoes with tracer rays of almost infinitesimal power, amplifying their torpedoes themselves. That's the way I'd do it. It may take a while to rig up the apparatus, but we'll get it, and then we'll run those birds ragged so fast that their ankles will catch fire, and it won't need the fourth-dimensional correction after all. When the bell announced the beginning of the following period of labor, Seaton and his co-workers were in the area of experiment waiting, and the work was soon underway. How are you going to go about this, Dick? asked Crane. I'm going to examine the nose of one of those torpedoes first and see what it actually works on. Then build me a tracer detector that'll pick it up at high velocity. Beats the band, doesn't it, that neither Roval nor I, who should have thought of it first, ever did see anything as plain as that? That those things are following a ray? That's easily explained, and they're more than natural. Both of you were not only devoting all of your thoughts to the curvature of space, but were also too close to the problem, like the man in the woods who can't see the forest or the trees. Yeah, maybe something to that. Plain enough when Kasler showed it to us, though, said Seaton. While he was talking, Seaton had projected himself into the torpedo he had lined up so many times the previous day. With the automatic motion set to hold him stationary in the tiny instrument compartment of the craft, now traveling at a velocity many times that of light, he set to work. A glance located the detector mechanism, a set of short-wave coils and amplifiers, and a brief study made it plain to him the principles underlying the directional loop finders and the controls which guided the flying shell along the path of the tracer ray. He then built a detector structure of pure force immediately in front of the torpedo and varied the frequency of his own apparatus until a meter upon one of the panels before his eyes informed him that his detector was in perfect resonance with the frequency of the tracer ray. He then moved ahead of the torpedo along the guiding ray. Guiding it, hey, Dunark congratulated him. Kinda. My directors out there aren't quite so hot, though. I'm a trifle shy in control somewhere. So much so that if I put on anywhere near the full velocity, I'll lose the ray. Think I can clear that up with a little experimenting, though. He fingered the controls lightly and depressed a few more keys and set one vernier, already at a ratio of a million to one, down to ten million. He then stepped up his velocity and found that the guys worked well, up to a speed much greater than any ever reached by fenachrone vessels or torpedoes, but failed utterly to hold the ray at anything approaching the full velocity possible to hit his fifth-order projector. After hours and days of work and study, in the course of which hundreds of fenachrone vessels were destroyed, after employing 
all the resources of his mind, now stored with the knowledge of rays accumulated by hundreds of generations of highly trained research specialists in rays, he became convinced that it was an inherent impossibility to trace any ether wave with the velocity he desired. Can't be done, Mart, he confessed ruefully. You see, it works fine up to a point, but beyond that, nothing. I, I've just found out why. And in so doing, I think I've made a contribution to science. At velocities well below that of light, light waves are shifted a minute amount. At the velocity of light, up to a velocity not even approached by the fenachrone vessels on their longest trips, the distortion is still not serious. No matter how fast we want to travel in the Skylark, I think I can guarantee we will still be able to see things. That is to be expected from the generally accepted idea that the apparent velocity of any ether vibration is independent of the velocity of either source or receiver. But that relationship fails at velocities far below that of the fifth order rays. At only a small fraction of that speed, the tracers I'm following are so badly distorted they disappear altogether, and I have to distort them backwards. That wouldn't be too bad, but when I get up to about 1% of the velocity I want to use, I can't calculate a force that will operate to distort them back into recognizable waveforms. That's another problem for Roval to chew on for another hundred years. That will, of course, slow up the clearing of the galaxy of the Fenachrone, but at the same time I see nothing about which to be alarmed, Crane replied. You're working very much faster than you could have done by waiting for the torpedoes to arrive. The present condition is very satisfactory, I should say and he waved his hand at the galactic model in nearly three-fourths of whose volume the green lights had been replaced by pink ones. Yeah, pretty fair, as far as that goes. We'll finish the cleanup in about ten days or so. But I hate to be licked by a problem. Well, I might as well quit sobbing and get busy. In due time, the 906th Fetichrone vessel was checked off the model, and the two terrestrials went in search of Drosnik, whom they found in his study, summing up and analyzing a mass of data, facts, and ideas which were being projected in the air around him. Well, our first job's done, Seaton stated. What do you know that you feel like passing around? My investigation is practically complete, replied the first of psychology gravely. I have explored many fenachrome mines, and without exception I have found them chambers of horror of a kind unimaginable to one of us. However, you are not interested in their psychology, but in facts bearing upon our problem. While such facts were scarce, I did discover a few interesting items. I spied upon them in public and in their most private haunts. I analyzed them individually and collectively. And from the few known facts, and from the great deal of guesswork and conjecture there available to me, I have formulated a theory. I shall first give you the known facts. The scientists cannot direct nor control any ray not propagated through the ether, but they can detect one such frequency or band of frequencies which they call infrarays, and which are probably the fifth-order rays, since they lie in the first level below the ether. The detector proper is a type of lamp which gives a blue light at ordinary intensity, but gives a red light under strong excitation. Uh-oh. I get that. Okay, said Seaton. Roval's great-great-great-great-grandfather had him. I know all about him. 
Seaton encouraged Drosnik, who had paused with a questioning glance. I don't know exactly how and why such a detector works. We gave him an alarm, all right, even though we were working on a tight beam from here to there. Our secondary projector there was radiant enough to affect every detector within a thousand miles. Drosnik continued. From my analysis of these facts and conjectures, in conjunction with purely psychological indices which we need not take the time to go into now, I am certain that the Fenachrone have left their solar system, probably in an immense vessel built a long time ago and held in readiness for just such an emergency. I am not certain of their destination, but it is my opinion that they have left this galaxy and are planning upon starting anew upon some suitable planet in some other galaxy from which at some future date the conquest of the universe shall proceed as it was originally planned. Great balls of fire, blurted Seaton. They couldn't, not in a million years. He thought a moment, then continued more slowly. But they could. And with their dispositions, they probably would. You're 100% right, Drosnik. We've got a real job of hunting on our hands now. So long, and thanks a lot. Back in the projector room, Seaton prowled about in brown abstraction, his villainous pipe poisoning the circumambient air, while Crane sat, quiet and self-possessed, as always, waiting for the nimble brain of his friend to find a way over or around or through the obstacle confronting them. I've got it, Mart, Seaton yelled, darting to the board and setting up one integral after another. If they did leave the planet in a ship, we'll be able to watch them go, and we'll see what they did, no matter what it was. How, Dick? They've been gone for almost a month already, protested Crane. We know within half an hour the exact time of their departure. We'll simply go out the distance light has traveled since that time, gather in the rays given off, and amplify them a few billion times, and take a look at whatever went on. But we have no idea what region of the planet to study, or whether it was night or day at the point of departure, when they left. We'll get the council room and trace events from there. Day or night makes no difference. We'll have to use infrared anyway, because of the fog. That's almost as good at night as in the daytime. There's no such thing as absolute darkness upon any planet anyway. We've got power enough to make anything visible that happened there, day or night. Mart, I've got power enough here to see and to photograph the actual construction of the pyramids in Egypt the same way. And they were built thousands of years ago. What? Imagine the astounding possibilities, breathed Crane. Why, you could... Yeah, yeah, I could do a lot of things, Seaton interrupted him rudely. But right now we've got other fish to fry. I've just got the city we visited at about the time we were there. General Fenimal, who disappeared, must be in the council room right down here now. I'll retard our projection so the time will apparently pass more quickly, and we'll duck down there and see what actually happened. I can heterodyne, combine, and recombine, just as though we were watching the actual scene. It's more complicated, of course, since I have to follow it and amplify it too, but it works out all right. Dick, this is unbelievable. Think of actually seeing something. It happened in the past. Yeah, it is kind of cool, 
And as Dot would say, it's just too perfectly darn outrageous. But we're going to do it, right? I know how and why. When we get some time, I'll shoot the method into your brain. All right, here we go. Peering into the visit place, the two men were poised above the immense central cone of the capital city of Fenachrone. Viewing with infrared light as they were, the fog presented no obstacle, and the indescribable beauty of the city of concentric rings and the wonderfully luxuriant jungle growth were clearly visible. They plunged down into the council chamber and saw Fenor, Ravendal, and Fenimol deep in conversation. With all the other feats of skill and sorcery you've accomplished, why don't you reconstruct their speech as well? asked Crane with a challenging glance. Well, old Doubting Thomas, it might not be absolutely impossible at that. It would mean two projectors, however, due to the difference in the speed of sound waves and light waves. Theoretically, sound waves also extend an infinite distance, but I don't believe that any possible detector or amplifier could reconstruct a voice more than an hour or so after it's been spoken. It might, though. We'll have to try it sometime and see. You're pretty good at lip-reading. Get as much out of it as you can, okay? As though they were watching the scene itself as it happened, which in a sense they were, they saw everything that occurred. They saw Fenor die, saw the general's family board the airboat, saw the orderly embarkation of Ravendow's organization. Finally, they saw the stupendous takeoff of the first intergalactic cruiser, and with that takeoff, Seaton went into action. Faster and faster, he drove that fifth-order beam along the track of the fugitive until a speed was obtained beyond which his detecting converters could not hold the ether rays they were following. For many minutes, Seaton stared intently into the visiplate, plotting lines and calculating forces. Then he swung around to Crane. Well, Mart, noble old Bean, solving the disappearances was easier than I thought it would be. But the situation as regards to wiping out the last of the Fenachrone is getting no better fast. I gleaned from the instruments that they're heading straight into space away from the galaxy, and I assume that they're using their utmost acceleration. I say they're traveling. They're out in absolute space, you know, with nothing in the way and with no intention of reversing their power or slowing down. They must have had absolute top acceleration on every minute since they left. Anyway, they're so far out already that I couldn't hold even a detector on them, let alone a force I can control. Well, let's snap into it, fella. On our way. Just a minute, Dick. Take it easy. What are your plans? Plans? Why worry about plans? Blow up that planet before any more of them get away, and then chase that boat clear out to Andromeda if necessary. Come on, let's get going. Dick, calm down. Be reasonable. You're getting hysterical again. They have a maximum acceleration of five times the velocity of light. So have we, exactly, since we adopted their own drive. Now, if our acceleration is the same as theirs, and they have a month's head start, how long will it take us to catch up with them? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, Mart, I sure was going off half-cock again. Seaton conceded ruefully after a moment's thought. They'd always be going a million or so times as fast as we would be, and getting further ahead of us in geometrical ratio. Do you have an idea? I agree with you that the time has come to destroy the planet of the Fenachrone. 
As for pursuing that vessel through intergalactic space, well, that's your problem. You have to figure out some method of increasing our acceleration. As highly efficient as this system of propulsion is, it seems to me that the knowledge of the Nolaminians should be able to improve it to some degree. Even a slight increase in acceleration would eventually allow us to overtake them. Uh, Seaton, no longer impetuous, was thinking deeply. How far would we be apt to have to go? Until we get close enough to them to use your rays, say, well, half a million light years. But surely they'll stop sometime. Of course, but not for years. They're powered and provisioned for a hundred years, Dick. You remember. And they're going to a distant galaxy. Such a one as Ravendal would not have specified a distant galaxy idly. And the very closest galaxies are so far away that even the Fenachrone astronomers, with their reflecting mirrors five miles in diameter, could only form a rough approximation of the true distances. Our astronomers are all wet in their guesses, then. Their estimates are, without exception, far below the true values. They are not even of the correct order of magnitude. Well, then, let's mop up on that planet. Then we'll go places and do things. Seaton had already located the magazines in which the power bars of the Fenachrone war vessels were stored, and it was a short task to erect a secondary projector of force in the Fenachrone atmosphere. Working out of that projector, beams of force seized one of the immense cylinders of plated copper, and at Seaton's direction transported it rapidly to one of the poles of the planet, where electrodes of force were clamped upon it. In a similar fashion, seventeen more of the frightful bombs were placed equidistant over the surface of the world of the Fenachrone, so that when they were simultaneously exploded, the downward forces would be certain to meet sufficient resistance to assure complete demolition of the entire globe. Everything in readiness, Seaton's hand went to the plunger switch and closed on it. Then his face, white and wet, he dropped his hand. I... I can't do it, Mart. I can't. It, it, it pulls my cork. I know darn well you can't do it either. Okay, I'm going to have to call for help on this one. Have you got it on the infrared? Asked Dunark calmly, as he shot up into the projector in reply to Seton's call. I want to see this. I want to see all of it. It's on, and you're welcome to it. And as the terrestrials turned away, the whole projector base was illuminated by a flare of intense, though subdued light. For several minutes, Dunark stared into the visiplate. Savage satisfaction in every line of his fierce green face as he surveyed the havoc wrought by those eighteen enormous charges of incredible explosives. A very nice job of cleanup, Dick, the Asnomian prince reported, turning away from the visiplate. It made a sun. The original sun now is quite a splendid double star. Everything was volatized, clear out, far beyond their outermost screen. Yeah, it, it had to be done. It was either them or else the rest of the galaxy, Seaton said jerkily. However, even that fact doesn't make it go down easy. Well, we're done with this projector. From now on, it's strictly up to us and Skylark 3. Speed it over there and see if they've got her done yet. They were due to finish up today, you know. 
It was a silent group who embarked in the little airboat. Halfway to their destination, however, Seaton came out of his blue mood with a yell. Mart, I've got it. We can give the Lark a lot more acceleration than they are getting, and won't need the assistance of all the mines of Norlamin either. How, Dick? By using one of the very heavy metals for fuel. The intensity of the power liberated is a function of atomic weight, or atomic number and density. But the fact of liberation depends upon atomic configuration, a fact which you and I figured out a long time ago. However, our figuring didn't go far enough. It couldn't. We didn't know anything then. Copper happens to be the most efficient of the few metals which can be decomposed at all under ordinary excitation. That is, by using an ordinary coil, such as we and the fenachrone both use, but by using special exciters, sending out all the orders of rays necessary to initiate the disruptive processes, we can use any metal we want. Osnome has unlimited quantities of the heaviest metals, including radium and uranium. Of course, we can't use radium and live, but we can and will use uranium, and that will give us something like four times the acceleration possible with copper. Dunark, what say you snap over there and smelt us a cubic mile of uranium? No, no, hold it. I'll put a flock of forces on the job. They'll do it quicker. And I'll make them deliver the goods. And they'll deliver them fast, too, believe us. We'll see to that with a ten-ton bar. The uranium bars will be ready to load tomorrow, and we'll have enough power to chase those birds all the rest of our lives. Returning to the projector, Seaton actuated the complex system of forces required for the smelting and transport of the enormous amount of metal necessary. And as the three men again boarded their aerial conveyance, the power bar in the projector behind them flared into violet incandescence under the load already put upon it by the new uranium mine in distant Osno. The Skylark lay stretched out over two miles of country, exactly as they had last seen her. But now, instead of being water-white, the 10,000-foot cruiser of the void was one seamless, jointless structure of sparkling, transparent, purple, innocent. Entering one of the open doors, they stepped into an elevator and were whisked upward into the control room, in which a dozen of the aged, white-bearded students of Norleman were grouped around a banked and tiered mass of keyboards, which Seaton knew must be operating the mechanism of the extraordinarily complete fifth-order projector he had been promised. Ah, uh, youngsters, you are just in time. Everything is complete. We are just about to begin loading. Sorry, Roval, but we'll have to make a couple of changes. Have to rebuild the exciter or build another one. And Seaton rapidly related what they had learned and what they had decided to do. Of course, uranium is a much more efficient source of power, agreed Roval, and you are to be congratulated for thinking of it. It perhaps would not have occurred to one of us, since the heavy metals of that highly efficient group are very rare here. Building a new exciter for uranium is a simple task, and the converters for the corona loss will, of course, require no change, since their action depends only upon the frequency of the emitted losses not upon their magnitude. Hadn't you suspected that some of the fenachrome might be going to lead us a lifelong chase? asked Donner curiously. We have not given the matter a thought, my son, the chief of the five made answer. 
As your years increase, you will learn not to anticipate trouble and worry. Had we thought and worried over the matter before the time arrived, you will note it would have been pain wasted, for our young friend Seaton has avoided that difficulty in a truly scholarly fashion. All set then, Roval? asked Seaton, when the forces flying from the projector had built the compound exciter, which would make possible the disruption of the atoms of uranium. The metal, enough of it to fill all the spare space in the hull, will be here tomorrow. You might give Crane and me the method of operating this projector, which I see is vastly more complex even than the one over in the area of experiment. It is the most complete thing ever seen upon Nolamin. Each of us installed everything in it that he could conceive of ever being the slightest use, and since our combined knowledge covers a large field, the projector is accordingly quite comprehensive. Roval said all of this with a smile. Multiple headsets were donned, and from each of the Norlaminian brains there poured into the minds of the two terrestrials a complete and minute knowledge of every possible application of the stupendous force control banked in all its massed intricacy before them. Wow, that is some outfit, exulted Seaton in pleased astonishment as the instructions were concluded. They could do just about anything but lay an egg. And I'm not darn sure that we couldn't make it do that, too. Well, let's call our wives and show them around this thing that's going to be their home for quite a while. While they were waiting, Dunark led Seaton aside. Dick, will you need me on this trip? he asked. Of course I knew there was something on your mind when you didn't send me home when you let Irvon, Carfan, and the others go back. No, we're to go it alone. Unless you want to come along. Uh, I didn't want you to stick around until I got to a good chance to talk to you alone. Now will be as good as time as any. You and I have traded brains. And besides, we've been through quite a lot of grief together here and there. I want to apologize to you for not passing along to you all this stuff I've been getting here. In fact, I really wish I didn't have to have it myself. You get me? Do I get you? I'm way ahead of you. I don't want it, not any part of it. That's why I've stayed away from any chance of learning it, and the one reason why I'm going back home instead of going with you. I have just brains enough to realize that neither I nor any other man of my race should have it. By the time we grow up to it naturally, we shall be able to handle it. But not now, not until then. The two brain brothers grasped hands strongly, and Dunark continued in a lighter vein. It takes all kinds of people to make a world, and all kinds of races, except for the Fedekrom, of course, to make a universe. With Martinal gone, the evolution of Osnom shall progress rapidly, and while we may not reach the ultimate goal, I have learned enough from you already to speed up our progress considerably. Well, that's that, then. I had to get that off my chest, although I knew you'd get the idea right away. All right, here are the girls. Ah, look, Sitar, too. Let's show him around. Seaton's first thought was for the very brain of the ship, the precious lens of neutronium and its thin envelope of the eternal jewel, without which the beam of fifth-order rays could not be directed. He found it a quarter of a mile back from the needle-sharp prow, exactly in the longitudinal axis of the hull, protected from any possible damage by 
bulkhead after massive bulkhead of impregnable innocent. Satisfied upon that point, he went in search of the others who were exploring their vast new spaceship. Huge as she was, there was no wasted space. Her design was as compact as that of a fine radio set. The living quarters were grouped closely about the central compartment which housed the power plants. The many ray generators and projectors and the myriad of controls of the marvelous mechanism for the projection and direction of fifth-order rays. Several large compartments were devoted to the machinery which automatically serviced the vessel. Refrigerators, heaters, generators, and purifiers for water and air, and the numberless other mechanisms which would make the cruiser a comfortable and secure home, as well as an invincible battleship in the heatless, lightless, airless, matterless waste of limitable intergalactic space. Many compartments were for the storage of food supplies, and these were even then being filled by forces under the able direction of the first of chemistry. All the comforts of home, even to the labels. Seaton greeted as he read, Dole number one upon cans of pineapple, which had never been within thousands of light years of the Hawaiian Islands, and saw quarter after quarter of fresh meat going into the freezer room from a planet upon which no animal other than man had existed for many thousands of years. Nearly all of the remaining millions of cubic feet of space were for the storage of uranium for power, a few rooms already having been filled with ingots of innocent needed for repairs. Between the many bulkheads that divided the ship into numberless airtight sections, and between the many concentric skins of purple metal that rendered the vessel spaceworthy and sound, even though slabs many feet thick were to be shown off in any direction, in every nook and cranny could be stored the metal to keep those voracious generators full-fed, no matter how long or how severe the demand for power. Every room was connected through a series of tubular tunnels, along which force-propelled cars or elevators slid smoothly. Tubes whose walls fell together into airtight seals at any point in case of rupture. As they made their way back to the great control room of the vessel, they saw something that, because of its small size and clear transparency, they had not seen previously. Below that room, not too near the outer skin, in a specially built spherical launching space, there was the Skylark II, completely equipped and ready for an interstellar journey on her own account. Why, hello, little stranger, Margaret called. Roval, that was a kind thought on your part. Home wouldn't be quite home without our old Skylark, now would it, Mark? A practical thought, as well as a kind one, Crane responded. We undoubtedly will have occasion to visit places altogether too small for the really enormous bulk of this vessel. Yes, and whoever heard of a seagoing ship without a small boat? Put in the irrepressible Dorothy. She's just too perfectly kippy for words sitting up there, isn't she?